welcome to episode 15 of Slaytanic Vercast, the internet's only comprehensive chronological retrospective of the world's greatest thrash metal band, the mighty Slayer. Each week, we dissect a track from their back catalogue by playing through the song, analysing the lyrics, and giving a final appraisal. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, broadcasting from an abandoned amusement park somewhere near Utoxita, it's Dr. Lequescence. How are you doing, Doc? Oh, I'm uh, feeling very jolly this evening. Mm -hmm. um, why would I not? Um, you know, being in this absolutely desolate, abandoned amusement park, people used to come here and enjoy themselves, mm. and now they don't. Yes, that, this, this is the one. People used to enjoy themselves, yes. now they don't, makes me happy. Yes, of course. I, I, I totally understand because you're, you're, you're a very, very strange man. Now, th this is the amusement park that was crushed under the heel of, of, the, of the much more famous Alton Towers, I believe. That's right. Yes. Um, so, I mean, this is obviously a, a much more small scale uh, affair than Alton Towers. Mm -hmm. um, long ago, when, when, when even Dr. Lequescence was, um, was a bit of a wee nipper, um, we, we used to come here with not, not, not my birth parents, you understand, but with, with, with the humans who claim to be my parents. Of course. Um, and not the ones that released, that released you from your pouch. <laughs> no, not those ones. Not, right. uh, not, um, not the ones who, who, who organised the ceremony where the, um, the nursing pod was slit with a straight razor. <laughs> um, uh, but some, some, some humans. Mm. Um, and it, it had a faded, um, somewhat tawdry aspect, um, even in those days. Uh, but the fact is that people still came and they still enjoyed themselves. And even at six months old, I found this inconscionable and sure. I wished it to stop. Sure. And, and, and your wishes come true. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> um, I'm actually here uh, to meet um, an old acquaintance of mine um, of whom more news in the next podcast, because I hope Ooh. to learn something to my advantage from my, my um, friend is the wrong word. That, that, that was sort of infer that I ever had friends, uh, but from my old uh, associate, um, Gavin Dettol. Oh, yes. Oh, I see. Yes. OK, so th th I presume this is something to do with your ongoing medical procedures. Well, as you might understand from the man's family name, um, Mr. Dettol um, is a, an expert in um, sterilisation and keeping away bacterial infection mm -hmm. um, and other post-operative risks. Um, and th there's some very, very important things that I need to consult with him on um, before I... I embark on my, my, my next round of, uh, of auto-surgery. I find um, abandoned amusement parks and fairgrounds incredibly evocative places. Now, I'm not looking like you, Doc. I don't have ready access to multitudes of them around the globe. Um, but I have seen many, many photographs of them. And there is something very, very haunting about them it's, it's like a, it's like a, an, an abandoned school i suppose you know th this was a place where where pleasure was once sought and now there is only decrepitude and decay it, there, there is something really really striking about it 
Yeah, um, I find um, empty places of amusement, um, uh, empty amusement parks, um, desolated holiday resorts. Um, mm. Shopping malls, I suppose. Shopping malls, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, we're, we're obviously getting into Dawn of the Dead territory now. I've got to ask you, um, mm. because I kind of assume that you must have done. Uh, have, have you seen Carnival of Souls? Oh, a long, long time ago. My, my memory is very, very fuzzy. Um, because to those of you who haven't seen that film, um, you kind of need to. And to those of you who have, it will be immediately apparent that um, Mo and myself are very, very far from the only people who find abandoned amusement arcades to be tremendously evocative places. Mm, um, mm. There's, there's, there's an area of philosophy which I, I've, I've been studying a lot over the last two years, uh, which is called hauntology. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be dibbing in and out of, not in a very serious way, um, but I'll, I'll be dibbing in and out of as we get further into certain aspects of the Slayer back catalogue. Um, but one of the many, many parts of human psychology that it touches on um, is um, that places don't necessarily need ghosts in the supernatural sense to be haunted um, in a very, very powerful way. Mm. Um, I mean, up there, along with abandoned amusement arcades, um, I have had cause on occasion for business um, and on occasion just under my own steam to visit <clears throat> um, former holiday resorts on the east coast of England, um, you know, where the... Um, the sort of uh, salt, rain, saturated um, gale comes in off the North Sea um, and threatens to destroy your central nervous system. Of course. The, 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 these are the kind of places where cars, you know, last about five years because, because the, the air is so corrosive. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, I, I actually think, the whatever sociologists may say, the reason fish and chips... Um, became so popular in these areas is it's only by eating constant quantities of lubricant um, mm -hmm. that you can actually avoid the the, the, the salt-based um, corrosives from, from from sticking to you and rotting the flesh off your bones. Um, <laughs> from, from what I've read, um, East Coast uh, seaside, seaside towns in Britain are the places where most bottled water is sold in the world just to keep them decently hydrated um yeah it wouldn't surprise me um because considering they're by the seaside um and one would assume on on, on river estuaries um potable fresh water um seems to be a commodity in very very short supply mm. um many of them are of course built slightly downstream from some from something such as an oil refinery or a chemical works mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just so just add a little uh sous-sort of lunacy into the water yeah, um, but I mean, if um, if anyone is ever inclined to sort of take a protracted hiking holiday is the wrong word, sort of walking holiday um, along the north coast of the Thames estuary and then sort of round that corner up towards Ipswich um, and into Suffolk. I did it a couple of years ago, um, spent a couple of weeks over it. Um, and because it was already winter and getting close to Christmas, I took my beloved copy of um, Collected Ghost Stories by M.R. James. Mm -hmm. um, I visited places such as the um, now abandoned, well, I got as close as I can get to the abandoned nuclear bomb testing facility 
um, in Suffolk. Um, I should point out, it was where they tested the bomb part of nuclear weapons, not the nuclear part. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there were never actually any nuclear detonations there, just to make just to make everyone clear on that. But they did practice dropping the cast iron and steel bomb casings. Um, so still very classified, still a very, very important part of something really, really terrifying that most definitely really happened. Now, you say that, 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 that there was no uh, nuclear um, payload on those devices that were being tested, but, you know, how do we explain the fact that most people in Norfolk have seven fingers on each hand, Doc? Um, there's something wrong with Norfolk. Okay. Um, the same thing that causes people to have seven fingers um, most often on their left hand is the same thing that makes rivers flow backwards. Mm -hmm. Norfolk, for our, um, and, you know, our international li listeners, is a place that um, to enter, you pass through a strange kilometre-wide mist that descends over, over your car, no matter the weather, no matter the time of day, and when you emerge from the other side, it is as if you have travelled back in time, maybe 50 years hence. It's a strange, strange part of the British Isles. Doc, is I have to tell you, sir, I am under a little bit of time pressure tonight. Um, so do you mind if we just blast straight on with the music? Absolutely not. So we, exceptionally good listener we're going to skip the topic this week and we're going to skip the corrections of course no corrections anyway because we have achieved a state of perfection that is the envy of the world um but all of that will be back to normal next week for now let's move on okay welcome to part two of the show here we play the track pause it from time to time to discuss what we are listening to, and generally just get on down to a bit of Slayer. This week's song is track three, the final track from the EP Haunting the Chapel, also called Haunting the Chapel. So here goes. <laughs> start to me it sounds like almost like a mashup of um something from show no mercy and the first track of this album of this ep chemical warfare it's kind of somewhere in between the two what do you reckon yeah um there's another couple of um if 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 slayer were a lego set if slayer were a lego set um then I think we've already identified which bits of which tracks are the eight nodule cuboid and the six nodule cuboid um, and the right angle shaped things with nodules on the inside, crucial for making right angle joins. Um, and I think this is the two wheel bogey component oh, yes. um, of the Lego set. Mm -hmm. You don't use it quite so often, but you really don't want to be without it. Mm -hmm. um, and that is very specifically the dunna dun ch dunna dun ch. Mm -hmm. I think this, I think the opening riff, if it, if it had been played on Show No Mercy, would sound a bit a bit weak, a bit lame. 
But just that drop of half a note on the guitar actually gives it kind of a real sense of menace, actually. Um, it does. It's really important. Um, it's a funny adjective to use in the context of Slayer at all, but um, it's very subtle. Mm. The, the half-tone drop, I didn't notice it. Mm -hmm. If you recall last week, you had to point it out to me um, that um, they had begun down-tuning by, by, by half a stop. And it's it's not so like ham-handed that it's like tuning down to E new metal seven string or twenty seven string guitar bollocks. No, no. Um, yeah, I, I I can't put it any better than you just did. Mm. Um, it's it's subtle and um, it adds an air of menace. It really does. Um, Let's press on. Could it be the first slang track with, with a sense of groove, do you think? I'm going to ask you to elaborate on that a bit more. Um, <laughs> at the moment, um, I'm inclined to say, right, I've learned how unwise it is to dismiss anything that you say ever. Um, <laughs> without your explanation, at this moment in time, I'm inclined to say, I can't hear any grunge in there at all. Groove, not grunge, groove. I'm very sorry. Mm -hmm. um, that was a moment yeah. to drop out. Um, I think there are a couple of tracks, or a couple of bits on the first album, um, a couple of bits that we, we pointed out as being a bit doom metal, a bit Black mm. Sabbath, mm. like something that Cathedral would play. Um, I think they've they've toyed with the groove yeah. um, before. Um, they're not giving Sly Stone any cause for worries just at the moment, but I see what you mean. Yeah, but it's because I, I feel like you could bop to this as, just 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 as easy just as easily as headbang. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's a real nice a real nice vibe to it. Let, 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 let's let's continue. <laughs> People just listening to this will not be aware, but the doc is entertaining me by throwing some shapes very, very provocatively. So far, so far for me, this is just a, it, it's a, it's a, a rock solid mid-tempo thrasher, basically. Um, nothing, nothing excessive in terms of, you know, technique, speed, aggression, um, you know, any sense of depravity. It, it, it's just getting on with its job and it's doing it really, really well. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you said that because by the time we get to the final appraisal, um, I've been a bit too critical recently. I've been a bit harsh on things that are doing what they do perfectly well. Mm. And 
I've got to remind myself that um, it's a mistake to expect or even to demand constant progress and constant innovation. Um, sometimes it's really, really nice to hear a track from a band that settled into a groove mm -hmm. um, for a short time or for a long time and are genuinely happy with the songs they're writing and the songs they're playing at this moment. Um, so let's, let's cherish those moments for a bit. Let's yeah, carry on. I agree. Inevitably, they were going to pick up the pace, weren't they? And, and by Jove, they have done. And, and, and the reason it's, it, 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 it's tremendously effective is, is because of that, you know, the opening, you know, one minute 45, that was just, just a nice little groovy little headbanger, almost kind of lured you into a false sense of security. And then they go, okay, now it's time to wake up. Yeah, <clears throat> and there's another point I need to make here, which is that, even at this really quite early point of their career, um, the members of Slayer are functioning so very, very well as a band, um, and they're so very, very competent um, at what they do, is the result of that is that they end up making it sound easy. Yeah, that that's section right. that you just played. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing easy about the musicianship in that. It's mm -hmm. fast, it's tight, it's demanding. Um, there aren't precisely a, a, a lot of notes in it, Mm -hmm. But it takes a degree of musicianship to play that that's far beyond anything that I have ever possessed. Um, and if, if Slayer ever get, I, I, I need to make a mental correction for now and the future. If Slayer ever start to sound lazy for me, um, I need to remind myself, no, they just make it look easy. They, they, they just make it look easy. Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would disagree a little bit, Doc. I, you know, I don't think that, that fast riff they're playing there is particularly difficult to play. I think you know, you know, once you once you've once you've got a loose wrist mastered, basically, I don't think there's much to that. A loose um, wrist mastered, what? Yeah, exactly. Of course, um, you know, once you've developed that, that 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 loose loose wrist capacity, I don't think that's particularly challenging. But that does not detract from the efficacy of it. I would say. Sure. Let's go. Absolutely love that dog. The, the single, that single note chaos in the background. You know, as the, the tempo seems to be going up and up and up as they're playing it. Um, and, you know, both guitarists are harmonising on single notes. And, 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 and Tom's just kind of, you know, cutting underneath, holding the bass together. Oh, sensational. Here's a question. Um, what do you see 
as being the role of the bass mm. slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, electric bass is obviously the most neglected uh, instrument um, in metal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it was until probably a band like Primus appeared that anything even approaching metal um, had a noteworthy bass player to speak of. Um, sure. Oh, Steve Harris, obviously. Yeah, I mean, Harris is the exception, isn't he, really? Yeah, and I, I, I think he is the absolute standalone exception. Yeah. And I think that's as much to do with the fact that he's far more than whatever frontman made never had. He's the band leader. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's his band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I get the idea that he's the main composer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from Maiden... Um, not many, not 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 many genius bass. So com- compared to post-punk being the the obvious example um, of a genre that, that stands and falls on the ability of its bass player, um, jazz, funk, um, lots of other forms of music, but um, metal hasn't produced many bass players of renown. Um, so question for you: What do you see as being the role, um, other than a thing to hang around the singer's neck? Mm-hmm. Um, of the bass in Slayer? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a really obvious answer that I'm going to give, but it is just to give that bottom end, isn't it? You know, he, he I mean, Tom doesn't slavishly follow the root notes of the, of the guitars, but, but, but you know, maybe, you know, 70% of the time he's, he's just playing the, the, the same rhythm. Um, but it is just to, just, to add, just, to, just to add that extra depth. Now, very in, in, interestingly, we will see when we get to the next album, suddenly Tom comes to the fore because Hell Waits has a production that is very, very unusual in that the, the bass is almost the dominant instrument. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it almost overpowers the guitars in terms of the, 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 the production balance. It's very, very, very strange. Um, it's an, a, bit, a bit of an acquired taste, actually. Um, but as, as for his role in the band, you know, it, it, I mean, if he wasn't there, would it matter? I mean, it's a terrible thing to, it's a terrible thing to contemplate, isn't it? But, I mean, almost not really. I'm asking this question for a very specific reason. When we did the episode of covers of tracks from Show No Mercy, um, can you remember the, the name of the band and the name of the track? And I, I, I believe it was a um, Mediterranean area band. I believe they were Greek. Um, oh, yes. Superbly ropey, beautifully ropey recording of them. Yeah. Um, and you could hear the bass in that track. And I thought it added, I really, really thought it added a lot to it. Mm-hmm. it one of the things that I took away from me, um, how much better would it have been if Slayer had had a bit more bass in the, a, a bit more bass playing uh, on mm-hmm. the first album? Mm-hmm. And then obviously leaving myself with a question I thought I'd put to you when it came up, dot, 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 or would it? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because, you know, when you see them play live, you know, obviously from time to time you watch Tom playing, and, and and he's you know he's really playing he's he's not just he's not just on the on the bottom e kind of chugging along on on, on the root notes 
He's, he's playing little flurries, you know. He, he's riding up and down the fretboard. He's making real efforts, you know. But but generally, you just can't hear what the, you can't hear what the fuck he's doing, um, you know. So it, it, I suppose it is a little bit redundant. Maybe it's one of those things, though. You you don't notice it until it's taken away. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think you would notice it if it wasn't there. Um, mm. In the context of a live show, obviously the the bass is, is is the most kinetic instrument mm. um it's the one that plays the frequencies that you you feel in your guts and your groin yeah yeah um, and i think you'd really miss it there um in the end because we've discussed this before at this point in their history slayer were making records or making tapes that were going to end up being played on a lot of shitty personal stereos of in, the hands of, in the hands of a lot of broke teenage boys yeah um with really, really terrible headphones. And if, to make the mix a bit simpler, if to get a track out of something at all, there's an instrument you have to neglect. Um, I think obviously the bass is the one you would, isn't it? Yeah, you're probably right. Let's, let's press on. My usual question, Doc. Who's playing the solo? Um, I would say that is not Mr. King. I would say that's Mr. Hanneman. Now, that is Kerry, actually, because I, 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 no. I watched the video earlier. And, but, but I think I would have guessed uh, Mr. Hanneman as well if I'd have been asked that question. So it seems to me, as we progress through this, that, that, you know, that, that rule that, that, that seems to be like a truism is not actually correct. Um, one of the reasons for doing research is to challenge prejudices mm. of people's and your own. Um, as I've said several times, and I'm going to say again now, the, 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 one singular, the one single piece of research that I want an answer to during this exercise mm. is what, if any, influence did Hardcore have on Slayer? Mm -hmm. Because um, it seems to me... Um, I've, I've done something a bit naughty. I've skipped forward a couple of albums and I've listened to a couple of tracks off a much, much, much later album. And it seems to me that um, by the time people began to talk about Slayer, Oblique Stroke, Hardcore, Hardcore owed more to Slayer than Slayer did to Hardcore. I think certainly after Undisputed Attitude, there was, a, there was an element of retconning the history. There's a changeover somewhere there. I couldn't quite spot it, but they definitely swapped. So if there was, um, I think it's I think it's Mr. Hanneman who ends up doing the Kerry King solo. Mm, I think you're right. Yeah, they, they, they swap roles. Yeah.
finish. That's absolutely sensational stuff. Um, so absolutely. that was track three, Haunting the Chapel, from the EP, Haunting the Chapel. Come on then, Doc. What's on your mind? Three things um, that I, I, I need to get out of the way before I forget them. Um, in reverse order, um, point number three, um, at the end there, uh, you can already see um, how Dave um, and everyone else is beginning to work with some with really, really complex rhythms, mm -hmm. really, really complex time signatures and time changes. Um, it's only for a bit right at the end there, um, but there's, there's a lot of progressive sure. um, in those last four bars. Mm -hmm. um, point number two, uh, you may have seen me miming along, um, but as if to prove me wrong, suddenly an audible um, and contributory bass part appeared mm -hmm. in the track. Mm -hmm. the, production um, was good. the production was very interesting on that song, I thought. So, you know, the, the, the fact that suddenly the bass was lifted out of the mix, you know, um, almost intentionally, you know, like the engineers just kind of, you know, push, push the sliders up effectively. Yeah, um, and that makes perfect sense because the first point, the third point I am making, the first point I wanted to make is um, the first appearance in Slayer that I can think of of one of my favourite guitar sounds, um, which is the cheap distortion plus cheap chorus. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, used to be a, a, a big favourite of, uh, of both of ours back in the day. Um, we've, we've both used it extensively. Of course. Um, it's one of those guitar sounds that never gets old to me, mm -hmm. um, but it is a unavoidable. It, it's you wouldn't call it a failing. It's a characteristic of that sound that it strips a lot of bandwidth um, mm -hmm. out of the guitar. Um, I think the reason it was such a big favourite with post-punk and new wave bands um, is that it enables you to <clears throat> effectively allocate a very narrow piece of bandwidth to the guitar and the guitar only and give the vocals and the other instruments, your keyboard, your whatever, plenty of space by themselves. Um, so um, I agree with you. It sounds as though the engineer has, has, has sort of pushed the faders up on the bass. Um, I think it's also possible that because of that sound, because you're narrowing the bandwidth, because you're narrow, narrowing the frequency band available to the guitars by the use of that particular effects combination, um, the bass just naturally emerges. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I, I always like using that kind of combination because for me, it, it gave it gave sufficient bottom end that I was happy with the chug on the guitar, but it also meant that any any kind of high any high notes any lead lines that that, that I was playing really cut, really cut through, and I, and I think we really heard that there. Yeah, um, it's a great way of getting. A halfway decent sound out of a really terrible amplifier, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, I, I really, really love the production on that song. Actually, in general, I think it, I think it's warm and vibrant. There's 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 there's, there's a depth to it almost. Um, again, just like with the first album, I would say that every song on this EP has a different production. Um, this the the production on this song sounds absolutely nothing like Capture of Sin. You know, you, you referenced uh, Dave's drumming. We could barely fucking hear his drumming on the last track, and here That's it's right, right there. The first track was, the first album was Slayer trying to make the best of the meager resources um, that they had available. This EP, it still isn't brilliantly budgeted, obviously, but um, there's a bit more money available 
um, the lads in the band, it seems to me, um, are more confident in calling the shots and asking the engineer for what it is that they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think each single track on this EP represents a, dis a, a different aspect of the, the, the Slayer voice. Um, Chemical Warfare, um, so many parts of the future Slayer Lego set in that one track. Mm -hmm. um, track number two blindsided me completely. Um, I've got to recapitulate this because it's going to, it, it's completely changed the way that I think of Slayer. The parts on um, Show No Mercy that I assumed were going to form the blueprint of album 345 era Slayer turned out not to be those parts at all. Mm -hmm. The parts that are going to end up forming the hallmarks of album 345 era Slayer are um, what we described last episode as the uh, the the evil that no album, yeah, yeah, um, sections. So and then um, in this track, even if you don't like the song, which I do, um, in terms of the production, in terms of the recording engineering, in terms of the use of guitar sounds um, and the roles of the instruments, um, I think this is a really important part of the uh, the, the the compositional Lego set. Mm. Um, that you'll see going forward. Mm. Um, it's the sound of a band not completely confident of where they're going to be in the future, um, but they're beginning to find their, 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 their feet. They haven't achieved what it is that they want to do yet, but they're beginning to have the vision of what it is that they want to do. Sure, yeah, they, they, they are aware of the potential yet to come. Yeah. I would say. Um, unless you have anything further to say, Doc, shall we move on to the lyrics? I think we should. Welcome to part three of the show, Evil Speak. Here, we read through and dissect the lyrics that Tom is generally screaming in our faces. So, here goes. Verse one. The Holy Cross, symbol of life, a of the last of Christian war. Speak of death, the words of hate. The Holy Cross, symbol of lies, intimidate the lives of Christian born, speak of death, the words of hate, anticipation grows amongst the dead. Hell has seen the priests attempt to bring forth their Lord of the Cross. Strike of 12, raise the dead, the chapel comes under attack. My word, Doc, this is horror 101, isn't it? It's absolutely sensational stuff. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Um, I mean, um, as you know, um, one of the, I would say games, one of the intellectual exercises that you and I enjoy playing with each other is you challenge me to find intellectual depth um, in the crassest, most juvenile junk, and I really do my best to do so. Mm. Um, the best I can do, as far as these lyrics go, is I think if you listen really, really carefully, if you write the lyrics down in two opposite columns, um, it's about a church being attacked by zombies. <laughs> I think, well, zombie demons, I imagine. Zombie hellish demons is, is what yeah. I've got in mind. 
I think it contains some veiled criticisms of Christianity, both as a system of morals and ethics, and also as a practical means of defense, should you be in a church which is being attacked by demonic zombies. I think you're right. I do like the line, anticipation grows amongst the dead. That's a great image, isn't it? You know, um, it brings to mind necroscope to me. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Necroscope series of books by Brian Lumley. Absolutely fabulous, hokey um, nonsense, which I absolutely love. Um, anticipation grows amongst the dead. You know, so obviously the dead are the dead, we presume. But if they're feeling anticipation, oh, oh, spooky, maybe they're not dead, you know. Or maybe they're dead but dreaming. Dead but dreaming, exactly. But dreaming. I, I do like it. Um, yeah, I, I, as you say, I, I, I think, you, you know, we, we're not going to be able to, to prize out much intellectual um, matter from, from, from this particular verse. But that is in no way a criticism. I think it's... I, I wish I'd written it. I think it's sensational. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, unless the next verse starts with the line... Um, Wearing my assless leather pants, I prowl round the gay district at midnight with a jar of amyl nitrate in my hand. <laughs> I think even I'm going to struggle to mine a great deal of meaning out of this track. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's good fun. Should we, should we go to verse two? Yes, please. The ghost is dead. Torment the priest. Their altar will soon be destroyed. Heaven's power turning black. The treasure belongs to the dead. Black and magic, and that's what love, Lucifer, will supreme. The crystal ball, shows on the face, the last thing that's heard in the sky! The ghosts of sin torment the priests, their altar will soon be destroyed, heaven's palace turning black, the church now belongs to the dead, black and magic infest with lust, Lucifer rules supreme, the crystal ball shows unknown fate, the last thing that's heard is the screams. Man alive, Doc, I can't go <laughs> back to these lines. These lyrics are brilliant. Um, there's only one, there are many, many words, but the word I choose to sum up the song is Santa Go. It's the best of its kind, absolutely unpasteurized, 100% um, natural produce, mm -hmm. but it's still cheese. Oh, 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 when you said Santa Girl, I thought, it's, I thought, has the doctor gone mad? Is he talking about cheese? And in fact, it turns out that you were. Good for you, sir. Oh, what analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Um, it's, it tastes great. Mm. It's beautiful. It smells wonderful. It's absolutely mm. fantastic. Nobody could, could criticise its quality, but at the end of the day, it's still cheese. It's just cheese, isn't it? You're right. The Ghosts of Sin is a great line, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. The Ghosts of Sin. There's just so many great evocative... This is, this is Slayer doing horror cinema, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, and uh, I'm going to put it to you. A very specific kind of horror cinema that never actually existed. In my mind... There should be about 30 um, US, we're too early for direct VHS so far, but there should be about 30 early 80s US um, small budget horror films um, which have the plot of this song. But no matter how, how much research you do, 
those films don't actually exist. They should do, but they only exist in my imagination and they're all fantastic. And they all involve churches being besieged by demonic zombies and priests having their genitals and their brains eaten. Well, <laughs> the, <laughs> you, caught me, you caught me off guard with that last line. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the horror cinema that this evokes in my mind is, is you know, um, Italian, early, late, late 70s, early 80s. I'm thinking um, Lamberto Bava in particular, I would say, um, who was, what was the name of the film he did? Oh, it's Demons, isn't it? Yes, he did Demons and Demons 2. Yes. Um, you know, the, the Demons 1 is... Is that the one in the cinema? Well, the, the, the Demons 1 is in the skyscraper, I think. And Unless I've got them the wrong way around. I think Demons 1 is in a skyscraper. And, you know, the, the, the front doors are locked and the residents can't escape and the skyscraper is overrun by demons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it, and it's sensationally, riotously good fun. And then the, 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 the follow-up Demons 2, um, it's set in a cinema. Um, mm, the front doors are locked. The, the patrons <laughs> can't escape. And the cinema is overrun by Demons. It's absolutely fantastic. And the, yeah. the, 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 the images that this conjures in my mind is Lamberto Bava at his peak. Um. I would agree with you. Um, I would add something like, not quite, something like City of the Living Dead, the Lukey mm -hmm. film. Sure. Uh, sure. Um, which I, I um, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> the um, the main demonic zombie um, is actually a suicidal priest, um, <laughs> and it's three of my favourite gore scenes in horror cinema. Um, there's the slightly retarded teenage stoner um, who gets killed by being drilled through the side of his head with a large lathe. Oh, yes. There's everyone's favourite, um, the woman who literally pukes her guts up. <laughs> um, and then very, very shortly afterwards, her boyfriend who gets killed by having brains and guts pulled out through the back of his skull. <laughs> now, City of the Living Dead, for, for people that don't know, is one of the, it, 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 it's a magnificent uh, Italian zombie movie, most notable for the fact that the zombies can leap around. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. I can't think of another zombie movie where the zombies can jump so spectacularly. It's great. <laughs> I had actually completely forgotten that. Um, if there are any youngins out there who have never seen an Italian zombie film, um, they're a mixed bag. We love all of them, but um, if you want one that's got it all, not just leaping zombies, I believe it's got teleporting zombies as well. I think it has as well. It definitely has, yes, yes, you're um, right. I believe there's a scene where the suicidal priest, who even though he walks, is still hanging by a rope mm. from something just off camera. Mm. Um, and at one point he appears in front of a car and then for no good reason he teleports to behind the car. <laughs> um, it's, it's sensational, it really is. It, it, it's not my favourite of Forky's because that would be From Beyond, I think, but uh, not From Beyond, no, The Beyond. The, the Beyond, beyond. Yeah. yeah. absolutely magnificent.
um, the Beyond has more eye gougings mm -hmm. than Zombie Flesh Eaters. Yeah. Um, but the one in Zombie Flesh Eaters more than makes up for the multiple eye gougings in the Beyond. Oh, it's, it's the standout, isn't it? Yeah, the Zombie Flesh Eaters eye gouge sequence is, is the absolute... I mean, there, there is no better eye gouge sequence in cinema. I would, the, not, not that I've seen, anyway. It's, it's, it is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think I'll put it this way, um, if we're talking about Italian cinema. Um, uh, zombie Flesh Eaters is to eye gouging what Cannibal Ferox is to castrations. Sure, no, I totally agree. Let's get back on track, Doc. Why, why you keep banging on about zombies? Let, anything else to say about the lyrics? Well, they're about zombies, mate, and demons. Yeah, well, um, it, and a priest. It's just really good fun, you know, and, and, and for me, you know, it, any set of lyrics that, that, that invokes, the, you know, the phrase, the crystal ball is, is always going to, always going to be okay by me. Um, I can pick nothing from it. All I can say is I think it's absolutely wonderful. There are three words, and this is just me. There are three words which, uh, for future reference, if you're trying to make me smile and you're trying to make me happy, use them by all means. If you're trying to make me scared, when you're writing song lyrics about the supernatural, please never use the words crystal ball or magic or spell. <laughs> as soon as you mention crystal balls or magic, no matter how black you claim the magic is, as soon as you say the word magic, and particularly as soon as you say the word spell, um, <laughs> A huge shit-eating grin breaks out across my face and I can't help smiling and I will enjoy myself immensely, um, but you're not scaring me anymore. No, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. Let, 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 let's have a look at the first break section here. Ghosts from hell invade this feeble shrine. Heaven's holy house will fall in time. Satan's morbid soldiers chanting lust. Destruction of the church will burn the cross. I mean, again, it's pretty you know, evident what they're talking about. Interesting, the second use of that word lust, you know, we, we, we referenced before the fact that, um, in fact, in the last song, when we were talking about, you know, Slayer's kind of, dalliance with this with this kind of idea of like occultist sexuality and then and this is oh, yeah. evidence of it i'm going to repeat sort of repeat something i said last time which is that uh, there's, there's there's very little heat in slayer's loins um that that they're, they're not a band who sing about carnal subjects very much mm -hmm. um and when they do it's inevitably in some sort of aberrant yeah Mm -hmm. um, and I can never get away from the idea that um, I don't know how very Protestant or how very Catholic the upbringings of the various members of Slayer are, but they seem to have a real preoccupation with um, sex being intrinsically associated with, it, it's, it's almost perverted by definition or else associated with various perverted things. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's like sex is, is associated with some kind of punishment due. And, that, and that's, a very kind of, that's a very Catholic uh, mentality, isn't it? Yeah, um, I suppose that the, the Catholic version would be just like you just said, um, that um, carnal sins must be, must be punished. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the Protestant version, so obviously the very um, New World Calvinist or Lutheran corollary to this would be that people who incite carnal desires in you must be punished. I mean, Tom, Tom is um, uh, of, of Ch Chilean extraction. His family, I think, were first-generation uh, Chilean migrants into America. There's, there's no doubt that he had a Catholic upbringing. You know, I, I think I think we've I, I, we've talked about this recently, but I don't know if we did it on air or off air. You know, the fact that Tom has um, referenced his Catholicism. In, in, in a way that kind of suggested that, 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 that he's a practicing Catholic, but he, but he does it with such a cheeky wink and a smirk that I, I genuinely think he's, I think, I, I think he's trolling us, to be honest. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I think either might be true. Um, I'm going to leave that hanging now because mm. there's some juicy fruit on that precise subject going to be coming down the pike really quite soon. Sure, yes, I imagine. Yeah. Back to the song in hand. <clears throat> it's... Um, it's another one of those Slayer songs where the lyrics are not great or even good, uh, but they are effective. Mm -hmm. um, in a song like this, you kind of don't want any ambiguity in the lyrics. You, you, you don't want to be distracted by my usual ramblings about um, the cosmology of war or homosexual panic mm -hmm. um, or class politics. Mm -hmm. um, it's a song about a church being besieged by demons. Yeah, it's just a horror story, isn't it, you know? I mean, to, to, to get back to that lust stuff just briefly, I think what Slayer do, um, you know, no matter, what they're, no matter what they're talking about, whether, you know, whether it is, whether it is um, sexual deviancy or whether it's, you know, war or just, you know, general, the, the dark recesses of, of, of human behaviour. I think what they do, as a matter of course, they, they, they take the darkest aspects of human thoughts and fantasies and just put them on the page, basically, um, without judgement, without judgement. They, they just lay it out. They, they don't say it's right or wrong, and they catch it in this kind of semi-metaphysical, semi-phantasmagorial, semi-fantastical veneer, that we, which is what makes it all so cinematic and, and, and so evocative. Um, but, but all we're really doing is taking the dark things that people think about all the time and singing about them. Now, um, I was planning on putting this off, but now is actually an apropos time to bring it up. Um, nothing you've just said contradicts remotely um, the broad scheme of Jesuit thought. Mm -hmm. um, and the Jesuits are obviously massively influential, both for good and bad, um, in South America. Um, I'm going to stick my neck out here and say that the Jesuit strain of Catholicism is probably still the preeminent one in very, very large chunks of South America. And if you can sort of figure out if, if you can try to figure out what separates Jesuit thought from other aspects of Orthodox Catholic thought um, it's that the Jesuits have never been have never denied that there are parts of observable natural history which appear to contradict the tenets of Catholicism mm -hmm. they've never denied the fact that there are parts of human psychology um, which grossly 
contradict um, the expectations that one would think God the Maker has for His creations. Sure. Um, in short, they've never the Jesuits have never been worried about the existence of the intellectual and the darkly intellectual. I would ideally like to hear a comment from someone who's been raised in that tradition or educated in that tradition um, to put me straight on anything I'm getting wrong here. But the essence I, I think of, of Jesuit thought is to, to take the deviant minds or the rebel minds or the subversive minds um, and try to make use of all of that rebellious energy um, and all of that subversive thought and try to make use of it in the cause of orthodox Catholicism. Mm -hmm. um, and if that means allowing people to stroll down the dark path or to learn about forbidden things or to have forbidden thoughts, um, then um, that's not merely acceptable. I think that's kind of encouraged. I, I think Slayer's position is, you know, if, if we take capture of sin, as an example, that first verse, we both, you know, we, we, we both commented about how striking it was and how, you know, kind of in your face, um, kind of rape fantasy it seemed to be. I think Slayer's position is human beings, you know, men fantasise about raping women. Women fantasise about being raped. We're just going to sing about it and make it mystical. Deal with it. I certainly don't have a... Um, any means of, of um, disagreeing with anything that you just said. Mm. Um, and, but now is a good time to start talking about it because we're going to end up talking about it a lot. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Shall we? Um, let's look at the last four lines before we get too bogged down. angels as they pray to God, tormented preachers hail the twisted cross, haunting the chapel, hell's demons prevail, death has come, the house of God has failed. I mean, for me, nothing further to add really, you know, obviously, you know, I'll touch upon the lines that I like, hail the twisted cross, you know, that, 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 that's a great, a great use of English, which I like a lot, attacking angels, um, and ju just, just, just the title of the track itself, actually, Haunting the Chapel. You know, it, it's tremendously, tremendously poetic stuff. Yeah. Um, so I made a reference to reading M.R. James right at the start of this episode. The phrase, Haunting the Chapel, could very, very easily come directly out of something that M.R. James wrote. Mm. Um, not, in, but, and, it, and it's, it's a nice connection between... The idea of haunting the chapel, um, you know, makes me think of um, a situation whereby either for your own research or because your friends have got you to do it for a dare, um, you volunteered to stay up all night in some sort of small chapel out in the countryside um, and you are simultaneously dreading and hoping the appearance of, of, of something supernatural. Yeah, um, but, but, but specifically the, the choice of the word chapel is, is, yeah. is what I find most impressive because, you know, haunting the church, oh, you know, whatever, haunting the cathedral just sounds terrible. You know, haunting the abbey, I suppose that's pretty good, but haunting the chapel, 
suddenly, suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're on a hillside in a remote place. There's mist everywhere. Um, you know, you're alone, basically. And these demons are coming to get your motherfucking ass. Yeah. So is the word chapel um, even in wide use amongst um, any U.S. branch of Christianity? Tell you, Doc, not a clue. Um, it's a very interesting choice of words for them to use. Um, mm. For me, the, the, it's the very use of the word chapel and the very use of the word haunting. You know, like you said, it's not invading the church no. or besieging the cathedral. Mm. Mm. Um, both of which, by the way, are buildings where you'd be far more likely to find a priest. Mm. You don't find, you wouldn't find many chapel, um, many uh, many priests in many chapels. No, no, but I, I, I don't think they were. I don't think they were too worried about the theological accuracies at this point. But um, it's it's a very deliberate choice. Mm. Um, I don't think the word chapel would spring readily to the lips or the imaginations of many people who've grown up amongst the strands of Christianity that they grew up in. Oh, you're right. It's a very deliberate choice. It came from somewhere, and it was picked for a reason to evoke either the thing that you just said or to evoke a much older, more gothic, more European concept of horror. I think it's the European thing. I can definitely imagine, um, you know, somebody in The Sopranos, for example, saying, you know, I went to chapel this morning. I'm going to have to look that up. Oh. I, I kind of want to get to the bottom of how, how widely used chapel is. Um, because that's it's an unusual choice of words, and I'd love to get to know where it came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any further thoughts, Doc, before we, uh, before we wrap things up? Um, so in summing up, um, at the very beginning of going through the lyrics, um, I said there wasn't a great deal to mine out of them. Mm -hmm. um, it turned out there's quite a bit more to mine out of them, um, but a little differently to the, the, the mining that I usually do. Um, it evokes a set of cultural traditions um, and it places Slayer's Earth for the first time strictly in the realm of the imagined or the not experienced. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my opinion, up until this moment, um, they are, all Slayer songs have been about subjects that they have experienced themselves or they know people who have experienced them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, apart from the one about the omen, and apart from the one about the two demons fighting, but we'll agree to disagree, Doc. Well, um, particularly since um, I managed to sort of crowbar some fragments of homosexual panic out of both of them. Indeed. Well done, sir. High five. Um, but um, this is the first one where um, I think Slayer unapologetically go off the deep end and go explicitly into the realms of um, of fiction and imagination. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is significant, I'm sort of going to leave that as my coda for now. I, I, that's, 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 that's what I've got to say on this song. I really, really love the lyrics. Um, I think they fit the music perfectly. For me, these are probably my favourite lyrics of Slayer so far. And actually, I think these are more of a template of what we're going to see in future than anything we've previously seen. I bloody loved it. Welcome to part four of Slaytanic Vercast. Here, we just offer our final thoughts and summations. 
and discuss anything we inadvertently missed along the way. But before we do that, some crucial details, writing credits this time around, music by both Jeff Hanneman and Kerry King, as are the lyrics. Um, set list. This track has been played by Slayer 119 times, which puts it in 53rd position in the overall ranking. Um, the first time it was played was at a place called Keystone in Barclay. Bar is that California, Doc? Barclay? Um, there certainly isn't. Should we just say yes? There certainly is a Berkeley in California. Uh, there's is also it Berkeley? B-E-R-K-E-L-I-G-H. Yeah, but I'm British, so I would say that Berkeley. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's there's one of those closest to San Francisco, uh, probably closer to Oakland. Um, logical, is it? It's, log it's logical it would be that one, because this was back in 84. January the 2nd, 1984. Um, Capture of Sin was first debuted nine days later, if we recall from last week. So this suggests that, you know, the, this is the period they're trialling the, the, you know, the, the music from this EP. But the, but the set's not fixed down, you know, they're kind of swapping stuff around. Um, the last time they played it was at a, something called Metal Mania Festival. I'm not quite sure where that is. And that was on July the 11th, 2003. So... It, you know, strangely to me, it's not it, it's it, it's it's not a, it's not a favourite of theirs live, which I find a little bit peculiar, given the you know the, the, the grooviness of the start and then and then the the blazing speed of the of the second half of the track. I think that would be a, 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 a an absolute killer live. Um, obviously, they disagree, and who am I to argue with Slayer? Um, final thoughts, Doc. So. Um, as it's the last track on uh, the 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 interregnal uh, EP Haunting mm -hmm. the Chapel, um, I'm always very very interested in these EPs that bands or the, these extended singles that bands make in between albums. Um, you've mentioned before um, in recent history they very very often turn to things that are very very difficult to get hold of, um, and I often find that missing them. Um, means that you're you're faced with a gap between albums that's almost sort of too big to jump. Um, I'm really, really interested that in them for their historical position in mm. the musical development of bands, and this one is no exception. Sure. Um, it's, it's almost too obvious to say that it's a bridge between the first album and the second, because it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's also <laughs> almost too obvious to say that um, <clears throat> it refines a lot of the styles from the first album and projects them onto the second because I don't think it does. Um, I think a lot of the styles and a lot of the material and a lot of the ideas on that first album were very nicely tidied up by the end of that first album. Um, what this does is takes some ideas from the first album, mutates them beyond recognition um, and then maybe who knows, places them on the end of a diving board um, ready to launch into the second album. Will they go on to inspire the styles? Will we, will we be able to pick up a noticeable influence when we get to the second album? Um, I think probably that's going to be revealed quite soon. What I think you you're think? probably right. I mean, my prediction would be that Capture of Sin will um, predict the second half of the next album and 
Haunting the Chapel will predict the first half of the next album. Um, mm. that, that's my little teaser for you there, Doc. Um, the, the, the only other thing I want to mention here is the rarity of this EP. Now, you know, the, this came out in, I believe, 1984. I'll do a correction if, if I'm wrong about that. Um, and, you know, I searched for this for years and years and years and could, could find no trace of it um, in local record stores, record stores in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, we, we have to remember this, you know, this is pre-internet, so there's no YouTube, so you could just go and listen to these songs readily. You know, so the, the, these were something of an enigma, haunting the chapel. As a Slayer fan in the 90, early 1990s, haunting the chapel was a thing of, um, you know, like, it's like the Holy Grail. You know, it's, it's this song that I know exists, but I have no way to, I have no way to listen to it. Um, yeah, I can elucidate on that a bit. Um, behind the counter in Tempest Records, Mm -hmm. uh, when it was in the when when the um, the weird section was in the basement, um, they had um, the um, the picture disc of haunting the chapel. Yeah, um, which um, I believe was for sale for a very long time. Someone bought it in the end, but it was for sale for a very long time for about for one hundred and twenty five pounds. I mean, um, the, the, that's pretty standard. The, the you know the the only the only sniffs I got of copies of it were, were hundred pound plus. Yeah. No, and, and and you know, I mean, as much as I wanted to listen to it, I, I just could not justify it for the sake of three songs. Um, you know, it did, did, did mathematically didn't make any sense to me. Now I've listened to it. You know, I, I, I'm I'm very very pleased with the results. No EP in the no record in the world is worth 120 quid. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, I. Have a, I was going to say I have a cordial dislike of collectors' markets and mm -hmm. rarities markets. I don't have a cordial liking, uh, like uh, dislike for them. I have a fucking loathing of them. Um, I hate people who obsess about antiques. Um, I hate toy collectors. I hate people who pester around car boot sales looking for hidden bargains. Um, and if you were to suspect that um, this is due to a childhood being made to watch Antiques Roadshow on Sunday afternoons, um, you wouldn't actually be far wrong. Mm -hmm. um, they're loathsome attitudes. There's no record in the world that's worth 125 fucking quid. No, um, no, of course not. Of course not. And I think that one pound per song um, in those days was a perfectly reasonable cost. Uh, for a piece of recorded media. The peculiar thing is, it very obviously wasn't one of those records that ended up being so obscure <clears throat> in order to foster a legend or because of some contractual mistake. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I know, the recordings were never unavailable. As far as I know, the recordings are always under copyright or covered by some contract or another. Um, and the songs are really good. Um, the the songs are not godlike pieces of genius that um, that sort of need to be safely kept out of the hands um, of the unappreciative, unwashed masses. No, they're really good songs. The songs are definitely worth one pound or one pound fifty each. Um, I 
I'm always curious in these situations why the record company just didn't do another pressing. Mm, mm. Um, there was clearly a market for it. Is is it to kind of foster like a, like an air of mystery around it? Um, you would think so. Mm -hmm. um, you would imagine um, that's often why these things are done. Um, but I can ask you this now: Is it not true that the air of mystery and the air of mystique only began to grow around the Haunting the Chapel EP <clears throat> um, when Slayer had already become popular and kind of made it redundant already? So, I mean, I suppose that's true. Yes, I mean, you're right. But, but, but that's a little bit unfair because, of course, when it, you know, when it was released, I, I was too young to have any appreciation. So I, so I don't know what was being written in the, in the music press at the time. So, you know, so, so it's a bit unfair of me to say, really. Um, but certainly by the time, you know, by the time I became cognizant of it, they, you know, they kind of superseded it with, 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 their, with their, you know, their, their kind of preceding success. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of other reasons why records like this um, become um, obscure. No single will ever get you a very comprehensive review in any printed media. Um, if you make a single, so going back to the days of the NME in the 80s and 90s, any single, no matter how good, will get you an inch and a half. It will get you 50 to 60 words. Sure. Um, an album will get you between 200 and 1,000 words. Mm -hmm. um, an era-defining top-of-the-world album will get you a double spread, which, if there are no photos um, and it's double-printed, um, you, you might get 2,000 or 2,500 words into that space. Yeah. But if you release an EP, which counts as a single... Um, if it plays at 45 RPM, you are never going to get more than an inch and a half in the singles column. Mm, um, mm. And it doesn't matter how good it is, your record is not going to be written about very much. Because the assumption, which I think is justified um, by music journalists is, if it's great, people will get to know about it anyway. Of course. If it's, if it's not great, then it will founder into obscurity very, very quickly. Mm. Um, amongst the quality music press, there's a snobbishness about singles anyway, that singles are really only for kids and the grown men buy albums. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a guess here. Because it was only ever a single, and in the market which Slayer were launching themselves into, um, that was an albums market. Um, and probably nobody gave a lot of thought um, to dusting off this apparently forgotten um, in-between albums single um, that Slayer had produced. I don't imagine it charted. Yeah, well, I think you're probably right about this. I don't think their contemporaries released EPs. I, I can't think of a, of a Metallica EP at the time, or an Anthrax EP at the time, you know, or a Megadeth EP at the time. So, so I think I think it was quite a little unique thing. So, so maybe, maybe it was quite hard to market, actually, and quite hard to pigeonhole. Yeah, so this is very... This is for, for me, for amongst two of my great musical loves. Um, and it took me a while to get my head around this or to understand how this worked. Um, in the world of 80s and 90s um, indie pop, um, singles were absolutely everything. Um, there is a good and practical reason for this, which is that there are many, many bands who produced 
three or four excellent singles, sometimes as few as one excellent single, and nothing else that you really wanted to bother about. Sure. Um, it's not the kind of music that was particularly oriented towards albums. Mm -hmm. The outstanding albums from those whole probably 15 or nearly 20 years, the, outstand the really outstanding albums, you can probably count on um, the fingers and toes of two healthy hands and two healthy feet. Mm -hmm. um, but the wonderful singles that you really don't want to let go of, there's probably 200 or 400 or 500 of those. Metal is completely the opposite. Um, I don't think any metal band ever has ever given a toss about singles, with the possible exception of Iron Maiden. Sure, yeah. And in the case of Iron Maiden, that was only ever um, to make them artefacts of the cult of Iron Maiden, because it was it kind of became an ongoing joke how quickly Iron, Ma Iron Maiden singles would go up the chart and then mm -hmm. how quickly they'd go back down oh, again. Sure, yeah. I mean, they would frequently go to number one, wouldn't they, for one week, and then, and, and then, and then they'd be at number 60 the, next, the, the following week. Uh, well, yeah, they, they would go to number one on the week of release mm -hmm. um, and then be out of the top 100. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. Rock, are you ready to proclaim your liquescent swords? I am. Go on then, hit, hit us. I like that song a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I started off by saying, sometimes we should be happy enough just to have a good song that's well produced. Um, it did that for me. Um, and reminding myself of what I said right at the beginning, um, I mustn't mark it down for not being particularly innovative. I mustn't mark it, mark it down for not having particularly um, incisive lyrics. Um, I'm going to give it a score, which I think it deserves for being a great song with great performances. I'm going to give it eight out of 10. Dr. Lequescence, you yet again have read my mind. That is exactly the score that I, that, that I had in mind. I think it's a, a, a rollicking good song. I think it starts with like a decent groove, plodding, thrash tempo. And then it just accelerates into a full-on rip-your-face-off thrasher. Um, I love the lyrics. I love the ambience throughout. It's eight Moe's mutilated schools out of ten. Okay, that about does it for this episode. Don't forget to contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slatanicvercast at gmail.com. Join us next time when we will be discussing the first track from Slayer's sophomore full-length release, Hello Waits. The track is called, and wait for this, Hello Waits. See you then, Doc. See you later. Yeah. <laughs>